0: So my father had followed the boat ever since he escaped from Vietnam. He's the only one out of the the nine that um, followed the boat in its entirety. He didn't know where specifically it was, and he didn't really ask me for for my help. He would always just post like his more or less a memoir on Facebook.
1: You're listening to Stories of the Vietnamese Boat People. Hi, I'm Tracy nguyen meng and welcome back.
2: Welcome to our season finale. I'm associate producer Sao Ling nguyen, filling in for Tracy on this episode. As we wrap up our season six theme of Ba Me Uy. Stories of individuals uncovering the lives that their parents once lived. Like all of our guests this season, and probably like many of you who are listening, I've been through the process of unearthing my family's story. Honestly, I'm still in the process of trying to discover both the good and the bad in an attempt to contextualize a part of myself and my history that I've kept at arm's length for many years. It's an ongoing and sometimes rough journey, but one I don't regret embarking on. That's why this season has been so inspirational for me. Learning about other people's journeys of discovery has been relatable and encouraging. I hope these stories have also inspired you, or have brought you comfort in knowing that you're not on this road alone. In September 1984, nine Vietnamese refugees fled the country in a small sampan fishing boat. They set out to weather the stormy seas on this boat with no motor and just two oars. After seven days at sea, they were fortunately rescued by a French merchant ship and brought to Japan to live temporarily before being transferred to a refugee camp in the Philippines and eventually resettling in the US. Philip Fung's dad was one of the nine passengers on that boat. Here's the conversation between Philip and Tracy.
0: I was born in Orange County, California in Little Saigon in Fountain Valley. We had moved around a little bit um, when we were growing up. We ended up in Dallas. Uh, My parents were self-employed, so we were just moving anywhere where business was good, uh, doing the nail salon. We ended up in Dallas specifically because we had um, family out here as well.
2: Phillips' parents met at the Philippines' refugee camp. When their first child was born, named him after the camp.
0: So my father is from Saigon and my mother is from Cam Rang. So my father was in his 20s when he left. I thought he was a little older. Uh, my mother, I believe, was around the same age. I don't know about too much of the life in Vietnam. I just more recently found out Um how they escaped and why they escaped and what was going on
1: during the war in vietnam he must have been a teenager then
0: i believe he was 14 years old and he was actually there during the uh, state offensive so as i learned it learning how he was um running scrambling through his neighborhood trying to figure out where all his friends and his family were it was just utter chaos so it um it made me see him in a different light for sure because i I mean that was like the peak of the war at that time he was just scrambling house to house trying to figure out where all his friends and family were he didn't really know what was going on at the time like he kind of knew there was conflict and everything i believe at that time he had already lost both of his parents so it was just him and his siblings just trying to take care of of each other
1: and did he tell you how his parents died
0: no we haven't had too much discussion about that um The only death I know about was my older uncle, but he kept that from me and my family for a long time because, um, unfortunately, he had taken his own life uh, before I was born. He's the one who was in America first and was able to help sponsor my father and my family to get over here. Um, Shortly after that, he had gone back to Vietnam to get my grandparents ashes came back to California, and then took his own life shortly after that. Um, That's as much as I know about that story, and it breaks my heart a lot.
1: And that must have been so hard for your dad, too.
0: When he told me the story, he told me he used to cry in the shower every night. And obviously, he didn't really discuss that with us. Um, He just kind of kept it to himself. My mom's life, she lived out in the countryside, so it wasn't as chaotic as that. But... Uh, the stories, her and um, her sister told me as they were fleeing Vietnam, was different from my father's, right? Because my father was on his own small little boat, you know, little sampan boat, but she was a part of like one of the bigger refugee escapes. But just hearing the stories of like uh, cannibalism on the larger boats and um, the women being scared of getting raped on the boat, it you know, it really opened my eyes to, the hardships that the Vietnamese women had to endure through all this. My father chose to leave because he was just sick of the communist regime. He, I mean, Vietnam was like growing more or less into, you know, a free democracy before all this. Right. And he, he's a smart guy, even though I don't get along with him. He's a very smart person. And I respect everything that he's ever done. Um, He knew what it was kind of, like to you know live your own life without being told what to do and told when to eat and how much food you're going to be having he was just sick of it at that point him and eight other people decided they were just tired of this and they'd rather die out at sea than live underneath this communist regime and do
1: you mind if i ask how come you and your father don't get along
0: he just really wasn't there for me whenever i was growing up I just didn't understand a lot of what was going through his mind as he wasn't uh, around for, for me and my siblings. I, I know now he's tried his best. I just didn't know it at that time. But he wasn't a fatherly figure for me, and it could be the fact that he really didn't have one when he was growing up anymore. You know, I'm a first-generation Vietnamese-American. I grew up in Little Saigon, which is... Uh, blessing to me. I didn't realize it until I was much older. I was able to grow up in a community with nothing but Vietnamese people around me. I didn't speak a Lika English until I went to school and we moved around a lot so I wasn't really able to establish a lot of uh, friendships and um, a sense of belonging anywhere. At one
2: point, Phillip's family moved to Louisiana
0: we lived up in bridge city. So, you know, right across the, the bridge from new Orleans, north of it. The reason why we moved was there were just gunshots everywhere. And my mother was just not having it. She was like, we're leaving. We cannot stay here. And now looking back at it specifically right now, I understand completely, especially after fleeing Vietnam, that's not a neighborhood she wanted to raise her children in. So after Louisiana, we had a short stop in Illinois and Chicago, uh, we had some family up there. I'm not sure exactly who they were, but I just remember being up there for a few months. And after that, our next stop was uh, Minnesota, Minneapolis. Or they decided to open up their own nail shop. I remember I was, since I was the first born, I was a translator. We're sitting there with, what was it, like twenty, thirty thousand dollars 30000 in cash in a fanny pack in a very sketchy neighborhood in Minneapolis, you know, <laughs> trying to trying to broker the deal you know to get this uh commercial spot and uh, that's where we uh opened up our first nail salon and uh it was actually very successful i remember there was an article Jesse Ventura was the governor saying it was the best minute uh nail salon in Minneapolis and after we sold it it still was successful it's still there to this day um the culture i identify with the most is um pretty much the city the city and the projects um Vietnamese people, especially with the way my family was, we didn't have a lot of money coming over here being sponsored. So we're just uh, picking the areas that we could afford. And unfortunately, they weren't the best areas. So um, after I moved around, most of my friends I grew grew up with were black, um, and they became less and less Vietnamese oriented. I would only speak Vietnamese at home, so that's where I felt the most Vietnamese. I just had to raise my little brother and sister, uh, which irritated me to an extent, but it also prepared me to become a parent. Um, I have a a son now, so I'm blessed to have him in my life, but it was, like I said, a sacrifice to my own childhood because I wasn't able to do the things I would have liked to do as a, um, as a child. By the time I was, um, uh, in my teens, I was going to the parent-teacher conferences because they just didn't understand um, English, you know, they were just, especially when they were handing out flyers in English, they're like, hey, you need to translate this for us. Like, we, we don't know what's going on. Starting to take them to, like, doctor's appointments after I was uh, able to drive to make sure they were okay and just doing things like that for them. I got to take care of these kids and make sure that they're fed and you know they got everything that they're doing. Uh, help with sitting down there, helping them with their homework and stuff.
1: What's your relationship like with your younger siblings today?
0: We we're all really close. Um, it might be a Vietnamese thing, but we don't talk all the time. But when we're together, it's just like it feels like home. Like I I love them both. I have their names tattooed on my chest. Like they they were everything to me. They still are everything to me.
1: I love that you're like there and high. Is that what they call yeah.
0: you? Yeah, yeah. My little brother, not so much, but my little sister for sure. I was in the military from 2008, 2012. I was in the Marine Corps right out of high school. I graduated high school early. Um, mm-hmm. So by the time I went, I had just turned 18.
1: So tell me why you chose that career path.
0: Um, so I I ended up choosing it because I didn't feel like I had much else going on for me. And looking back at it, I had a lot going on for me. I just didn't realize it. And plus, I felt like we couldn't afford college. I could have joined any other branch and chose any other job realistically, but I chose the infantry. Um, But that led me to deploying in Afghanistan in 2010. Going to war was actually what I wanted to do, what uh, what I felt like I was really good at
1: how did your parents react
0: they they were blindsided because they had they had no idea that i wanted to do something like that but they didn't know anything about me do they weren't really there i played basketball soccer baseball i played almost all the major sports they never came to one game that crushed me when i was little but i just didn't want to talk to them about anything anymore so by the time they just had to sign some paperwork I was like, I'm I'm going whether you want me to or not. Like, I just don't want to be here anymore.
2: On August 15th, 2021, U.S. troops were set to officially withdraw from Afghanistan. Taliban leaders entered the capital city of Kabul and the Afghan government collapsed, leaving many civilians desperate to flee the country. This is the moment when Philip's feelings about his parents began to change
0: when I watched the fall of Afghanistan. Um, And all the people trying to scramble for safety, especially when I saw the people falling off the plane. It made me realize that they went through the same things because at first I got emotional because it was um, the way everything had fallen apart. I thought about my friends that were killed over there And how I felt like they died from nothing. And then it started creeping into me. I'm like, this was just like Vietnam. America just pulls out and the people are just left to suffer. And what were they there to begin with for? And then it started to make me realize, be like, well, how did my mother and father deal with this? They They were there during that time. And then as I started learning more about their history, I was just like, I don't know how I would be as a person if I had to deal with that at such a young age because I already feel how it affects me now and how emotional I get about it now and even when I speak about it. I always wanted to go back to Afghanistan one time and be like, hey, you know, I was there and I made a difference. And now it's at that point, I'm like, "Who did all that for what? You know, for people to suffer, for people to, to end up with just the, the physical, emotional scars. So my father had to follow the boat ever since he escaped from Vietnam. He's the only one out of the, the nine that um, followed the boat in its entirety. He didn't know where specifically it was, and he didn't really ask me for, for my help. He would always just post like his more or less a memoir on Facebook, you know, large Vietnamese community up there they were out at sea for seven whole days. Um, this boat was a small little fishing sampan boat, um, no motor. So they literally went out there into the middle of the ocean on this thing that's not built for it. They had minimal supplies and they felt like they were gonna die every single day with the storms coming through. And before they had left, obviously, all of them had a meet up because they were not all in the same area. I'm not sure exactly how they all met or how they all knew each other. Uh, they were being hunted down while they were trying to escape. Um, they, they all met at the boat and then they fled out. Uh, I don't know specifically from what city they fled out from, but they, they met up and then they, they went out into the ocean. I know they tried to use the sail. Um, it almost flipped the boat over. And they didn't have a lot of food and water. They were drinking seawater for a little bit just to try to survive. And eventually they saw a boat, and my father had this small little rinkety flashlight that, you know, they were trying to keep dry. And he flashed SOS at the boat. You know, I'm pretty sure, however long it was, it felt like an eternity trying to flash sos at this at this boat this boat came over and it finally picked them up
2: the refugees were picked up by a french merchant ship and talked to japan from there eight were transported to the philippines refugee camp while one chose to stay in japan where they remain to this day the owner of the french ship decided that he would take ownership of the sampan and brought it to france where it has been preserved and maintained with care when he passed he donated the boat to the maritime museum.
1: So this boat had been sitting at some sort of maritime museum for like yes. over two decades, basically, yes, more, yes. <laughs> more yes. over three, yeah. right? Almost yeah, four decades. almost
0: almost uh, three decades. Yeah, twenty-eight years since my father had seen that boat. So ever since he the he got rescued from the boat, he he had stayed in contact with the captain of the ship. He has letters of uh, him writing to the the captain's wife and then them sending pictures uh, to each other. Um, But he didn't know specifically where it was. So he just knew it was in France somewhere. So at first I thought it was in Paris for a while, but it ended up being like on the coast of France, which makes more sense because a lot of um, uh, ships come in and out of that port. So, For a while, it was on display, and my father knew it was on display at a museum. He just didn't know where.
2: Over the years, Philip's dad has been thinking and talking about getting the boat back. In 2020, during the COVID-19 pandemic, his Facebook posts about his harrowing escape from Vietnam and his search for the boat caught the attention of the president of the Vietnamese Heritage Museum in California, who then contacted him to ask about the boat and offered to help find it and bring it to the museum in the United States for the Vietnamese community.
0: They they took all the pieces of information they could, like the captain of the ship, where it possibly could have been, um, reaching out to just, you know, you're, you're pretty much cold calling or at this point, I'm pretty sure it's social media, just Facebook. Facebook messaging, maybe Instagram, or whatever they were using to to get in touch with people, and then it ended up at um, got in touch with this one individual. It was um, like the old president of the museum, I believe, and they got us in contact with the president of the museum now, and that that's how that interaction more or less went. It was it was pretty chaotic. The president of the Vietnamese Heritage Museum had reached out to him to the president of the Maritime Museum in La Harbor. There were a lot of questions that the, that president in the museum had. Um, he was just like, who, who are you? Why do you want this boat? They had got requests before to, for other people to buy the boat. Most of the boats in the world were destroyed, um, especially the way communism is. They didn't want their that story getting spread out and uh, how people escaped and how bad it was. So they would actually purchase it and destroy it.
2: In November of 2022, representatives of the Vietnamese Heritage Museum based in Garden Grove, California, traveled to France to sign an agreement to receive the 23-foot-long-by-7-foot-wide sampan boat.
0: And when the stories aligned, he was like, I will absolutely let you guys have this boat. I remember when we got it, he put his hand on my father's boat. He was like, it's yours. He's like, it belongs to you.
2: Philip's dad reached out and asked Philip to help him get the boat back. The cost of receiving and transporting the sampan from France to the port of Long Beach, California, and ultimately to Orange County, California, would cost close to $90,000. But it wasn't just the cost that was daunting. It was also the logistics of preserving, securing, packing, shipping, obtaining customs clearance, and safely delivering the boat to his new home.
0: We had to raise funds for it. I was just like, I will do everything in my power because I've shipped stuff internationally before. Um, being in the military and then also being with Amazon just to know how that how that works, right? It's not super complicated things, but if there are things that you miss, that's how things get lost. And this is not one thing I wanted to be lost. And obviously this is a historical piece. So I wanted to make sure that it was gonna get back correctly, making sure all the documents were signed. Um, Everyone had like the BOLS, the bill of lading to to move freight shipment. So I wanted to make sure each person had a copy of the document, no matter where it went. So that way, it had a trail of paperwork to make sure if we if it got lost somewhere, because it got it got shipped in the cargo container. We were doing that uh, fundraising campaign. We actually got uh, hired a person to. Um, help write grants we got the dollar amount down and then we had to ship it over we had to make sure that it was already go through customs and then we were able to put it back on the cargo container and then we got to ship it back so i talked to the president of the museum i was like hey these are the things that we need we should have copies but like how many times is it going to touch down here or there and that that's the role that i played in that just to make sure that all that was streamlined I fortunately got to meet them because they all survived um, at the boat reveal ceremony at the Vietnamese Heritage Museum. Uh, some of them got to fly out. Um, one flew out from Japan because he had stayed there. Um, one uh, family flew out from Australia, just the children, the, the people that were on the boat and didn't get to make it. Um, and then some people from around the US This sampan boat is the only one in the world that actually has a story still tied to it. I think there are two other ones, but they're just boats. They don't know who was on it, you know, it just has a representation. This is the only boat in the world that actually still has people tied to it. So I, to me at least, in my opinion, I think it's a real big deal for the Vietnamese people to see it. There's families that still remember this and now the children are starting to learn about it too. The president of the museum had actually asked me to give the speech. I actually ended up wearing my uniform to it. My speech revolved on just us as Vietnamese people trying to communicate with each other. I've always struggled, you know, just trying to figure out like how American am I and how Vietnamese am I, you know? It's two different balances. You're not just focused on one thing.
1: Kind of listening to your childhood experiences do you think it's influenced you as a parent today?
0: I don't want to be like how my parents were with me. I I want to be there for him. And I want him to know that I'm always going to be there for him. Because I'm not saying that they weren't there for me, but it just felt like they weren't. I'm not so mad at them anymore because I'm like, they were just trying to do their best. I don't know how I would be able to do it if I was in their shoes. So there's been a lot of forgiveness and just trying to understand more.
2: Thank you so much for joining us this season. To learn more, visit our website at VietnameseBoatPeople.org and check out our Instagram, at VietnameseBoatPeople and look for details under episode 54. If you want to preserve your family's story, share it on our Journeys map. It's a global digital collective we've created to showcase the stories, photos, and artifacts of the Vietnamese diaspora. Explore the Journeys map and contribute your story by visiting vietnameseboatpeople.org forward slash journeys.
1: I'm Tracy Nguyen Meng and thank you for listening. If you enjoy the show and want to support our mission, please consider making a tax-deductible donation on our website. Your support helps independent shows like ours continue to amplify stories from our community. And please take a moment to rate us and provide us feedback wherever you listen to the podcast.